Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me from via Zoom, is my friend Wendy Jagerson. Welcome to the podcast, Wendy. Thank you. Um, as background, Wendy is an active Latter-day Saint, a married mother of two kids and one grandson. She's going to talk about three parts of her life that have occurred over her lifetime. She's going to talk about her diagnosis with bipolar 2 disorder. That diagnosis occurred in 1994, the year after her mission to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's going to also talk about um, living with MS. And that diagnosis was official in 2013, but she had symptoms before that. She's going to also talk about her husband. They've been married 25 years, have a wonderful marriage. Um, they both serve missions together. In the, well, not together, but in the same mission. Um, and he is now an atheist. And that all happened in 2012. I call that a mixed faith marriage. And she's going to talk about just how to keep a marriage strong and healthy when one spouse no longer believes. And so this is the podcast platform where we talk about kind of complicated stuff. And it's really my guests like Wendy that are brave enough to come on and, and share their story that helps all of us. Some of you may be in um, these worlds that Wendy's been in and perhaps our joint prayers, some of the things that she shares and her perspective and her journey on these roads will give you perspective and hope and healing and help you feel like you're not alone. Um, we offered a prayer, and that's our prayer. So if I do a good job as a podcast host, listeners, I will do very little talking from here on out and get Wendy to kind of share her story. Is that okay for an introduction, Wendy? Yeah, that sounds good. So why don't you just start with your story? All right. Well, a little bit of background. Um, my dad um, was in the church education system for 25 years, and we lived all over the country. Um, I was born in Ogden, Utah, and then we moved to Palmyra, New York um, when I was two and a half. And then um, we moved back to Orem, Utah, where my dad got his doctorate. And then uh, Tallahassee, Florida is where I say that I grew up. Um, he was the institute director at Florida State University there in Tallahassee at FSU. And then my senior year in high school, right before my senior year, we moved to Longmont, Colorado which is, um, he was the Institute Director at University of Colorado CU in Boulder. And so that is where I graduated from high school. And then um, a year and a half after that, my dad um, got his dream to work as a religion professor at BYU. And so they moved, well, we all moved to Orem, Utah in 1991. And they, they and I have been here ever since. So that's a, a little bit of a good backdrop to know. Um, one of the big things that has uh, kind of been interlaced through my whole story is perfectionism. And um, so a lot of that, uh, my, I'm the oldest child. Um, my siblings are six, nine, 11, and 13 years younger than me. So a lot younger than me. And I spent a lot of time um, babysitting. And in Tallahassee, the, a lot of traveling. My parents were always in leadership positions. And so they, they traveled a lot. So that made it so that I babysat more and felt quite a lot of pressure to just be a good example to my siblings, to the people at church. My dad was 
not only institute director, but in the stake presidency. So I was just kind of his daughter. Everybody knew me as his daughter. So that's the backdrop, I think, that's helpful to understand. So um, uh, I guess we can pick it up. So I went on a mission um, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, my first area was actually where I met my future husband. We never served in the same area at the same time. We, we served in all the same areas at different times. So we knew a lot of same members, all the same missionaries. Anyway, we had a kind of like a zone blitz where two zones came together to um, do some work. And we just happened to be talking for a minute. And it turned out that we live a few blocks away from each other here in Orem, Utah. Wow. Um, didn't know each other before. And um, so that was kind of an interesting, fun thing. And then I never saw him again in the mission, except that, um, let's see, the mission conference, there was a, a mission conference a few weeks later. And I did, actually, it was the next year. So a year later, I did see him in the hall at mission conference, and I was having a hard time. And I remember him just being kind. And and he was just very impressive to me that he was so kind when I'd had a hard day. He ended up being my zone leader, but never really talked to him for about a month. And then he was the AP the last uh, two transfers of our mission. So I knew of him. Well, we knew each other because we'd met that one time. But um, I was just always very impressed with him. He was, I thought, the hardest worker on the mission. I kind of wanted to like be like him. And so anyway, what's interesting is that we actually ended up coming home on the same airplane Wow! Um, because that would have made it. So he was exactly, went out exactly six months before me. We met at the beginning of my mission, didn't see each other. And then at the end, I didn't know this. He told me much later that he thought that he was going to marry me wow. after that first time we met, you know, wow. you always hear that, you know, but he didn't, you know, tell me that until much later. So with that in mind, he um, was kind of sly and had had our seats assigned to each other, next to each other on the way home. But I was clueless. And so I asked if I could sit by the sister missionary um, and we talked the whole way home. And he overheard that one of my companions was getting married the next day. And me and this sister missionary were going to go to the wedding and then to the reception. And so he decided he would just show up at the reception, which which didn't seem odd because he was all of our zone leader. He walked in and I was like, oh, okay. He just is here to support the sister missionary. Um, but he hung out until I was done with all my socializing and asked if he could take me home, which was good because this was down in Mapleton, you know, a few, few miles south. And that made it so the sister missionary didn't have to come back. And it just made sense to me. Oh, okay, sure. You're going the same way as me. Great. And so I had no clue and just was, he just was a gentleman and I was, I was grateful for his kindness. So he um, had a lot of drive, um, missionary drive. And so he was very persistent and we actually ended up dating very soon after that and got engaged after seven weeks, which wow. is kind of ridiculous, but it just, you know, it was the way it was. We um, we spent a lot of time walking and talking. And so I feel like we got to know each other really well in those seven weeks. However, um, that was the tricky part because um, after about two months, we were planning the wedding and it just kind of felt like the walls were coming in. And I was just like, oh no, my mission, well, 
probably eighth grade was the last really solid, good, happy year I've had. Um, I kind of struggled a lot with depression, um, beginning with ninth grade, off and on. And, um, and, and my mission was very difficult because of that. So I just kind of assumed that, uh, I don't know, that I would leave it in the mission field. I didn't expect it to come back so strong, but it came back very strong. And I thought, oh, I, I know what this darkness is. I don't want to drag John into this. And so I told him I needed to break up with him. And he was like, okay, I won't try to talk you out of it, but I know you struggled on your mission. I know this is not the first time. Will you please just promise me that you'll go, you'll go get some help with this because I just would hate to have you suffer like this the rest of your life. Cause he had been, you know, he'd watched, you know, um, a lot of signs through our whole dating. Um, I'm not, I'm not a good cook at all. And so in our dating, he, he did the cooking and said that he was going to do our, the main cooking in the marriage. And on one of our dates, for instance, I got so flustered about like cooking stuffed chicken breast that I kind of ended up running into the bathroom and until I could compose myself and came out. So there's been, there were times like that where he could see the volatile like moods that would come kind of out of nowhere. And so anyway, I promised him that I would um, get some help. And I didn't have any guarantee that I would ever see him again or that I would ever see that ring again. But I told him, I, I just can't really see you during this time then. I need to really focus on this. And so I did. So I went to a psychiatrist and um, he prescribed some medication for a mood disorder. He, he prescribed, he um, diagnosed me as bipolar 2 disorder, which with that, um, there's bipolar 2 and bipolar 1. Bipolar one is really heavy on the mania, which is um, very elevated mood um, and not as much on the depression. Um, the mania with that can get so bad that it requires hospitalization. Bipolar two is what I have, and it's just very heavy on depression with a little bit of mania called hypomania. So that's a little bit of background on that. Anyway, so um, I... Um, was diagnosed and um, was prescribed an antidepressant and also a mood stabilizer, which is how they handle bipolar disorder, and almost immediately felt better than I had in years. Good. Um, they, they normally say that it takes about six weeks for the full effect to happen, but often you'll, you'll notice it you know, within a few days, and I absolutely did. And it was a really big just a really big relief to know that it wasn't a character flaw, that I wasn't just moody. Um, I know like my parents kind of thought I was moody. They, my dad's a real positive mental attitude guy. And he would just be like, can you get in a good mood? Like, you know, he, they just didn't know. None of us knew what was happening. And he just, they, they couldn't quite understand why I couldn't keep a positive attitude and why I would get so, you know, depressed sometimes. Um, and my mission was very difficult. I called home quite a bit, wanted to come home, but my mission president just felt very strongly that I stay. And now we know why, because I needed to come home on the same plane as my future husband. So anyway, so I went to psych to counseling psych with a psychologist along right after this um, diagnosis. And I, and I um, learned it's, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. I learned different ways of thinking about things, reframing, 
things and just some tools on how to catch myself in this in unhealthy thinking patterns um, that would often cause a, a downward spiral to happen. Um, and my perfectionism, you know, was was tied up in it. And also, I have a little bit of obsessive compulsive tendencies, which magnify both the bipolar and the perfectionism. So it's just kind of this intricate little um, mixture of all of it. So anyway, um, I learned a lot during those therapy sessions. And um, so we broke up in around Christmas time. And around April, I actually had the mission reunion at my house. And we had just gotten together at the previous mission reunion. So everybody's like, where's John? And I was like, I haven't seen him in a while. And I thought, okay, I need to go. I need to go and talk with him and let him know, you know, that everybody said hi from the reunion, but also just find out what he's doing. And so I knew where he worked and, and I went into his work one day. And what was interesting is he had just been talking about me to his coworker right before I walked in, which is, I, you know, convenient, I guess. <laughs> and um, nice to know that I was still on his mind. And um, we just kind of uh, picked up kind of where we left off. I had no, I didn't expect that he would still be available really. Um, but he dated a little bit, but not much. And so I, I went to his singles ward one day and we walked home and kind of felt like we should, we should start dating again. And kind of a funny story. We went, um, one of the dates we went on up to the Canyon. He knows, I don't know anything about fishing. And so he's like, let's go fishing. And so I said, well, could you just let me know when you've got your hook out where you need it? Like, I didn't even know the terminology. And he's like, sure. So he just like threw it out there and just like let it like he wasn't even fishing. He's just like, if she has something to talk to me about, I'm going to let her talk, which is what I loved about him always. He was always very kind to listen attentively and and just give really good advice, actually. So he just let me talk. And that conversation helped us to know that we were both still on the same page and we still really uh, fit together. And so we dated after that and got married. We ended up getting married a year after we got home. So August 1995 in the Bountiful Utah Temple, such a good day. And um, so I was still taking medicine. We weren't planning to have a baby, but my mom, it had taken them like six years for both me and my sister on fertility pills. So I thought, oh, we're not going to have a baby for a long time. So we didn't prevent anything. So we had a honeymoon baby. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about that is um, we, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was like, oh. I can't be taking this medicine and you're not supposed to go off medicine on your own, especially with bipolar disorder. But I um, felt very strongly that I just needed to go off the medicine. And so I stopped taking it and decided I'm just going to be, I'm just going to keep my life very simple. And so that is what I did. I just kept my life very simple, tried to keep things very basic. I had a job as a bank teller before and after my mission, but I had such bad morning sickness that my sweet husband said I could quit after about two months. And um, so I was able to rest while I was pregnant with that first baby. And I nursed her for a year and um, kept my life simple still, was pregnant with our second son. And then um, life was not simple anymore. We decided to move into a new home across the other part of Orem. And we bought our first home and my husband had just started He's an entrepreneur, so he had just started a new business like a month before we moved in. And then, so we moved in Thanksgiving of 
of 98 and my son was born March of 99 and he was in the the newborn intensive care unit for the first 10 days of his life. And um, I didn't get to see him. They rushed him away um, from me and um, I had to go home without him, ended up pumping a lot and then having to go to the hospital um, to be there to nurse him. Well, that was anything but simple. And the big thing about bipolar disorder is that um, sleep, sleep affects everything for everybody, but sleep is crucial for bipolar disorder. If you don't get your sleep, it almost always starts one of the swings. Generally, it starts a hypomanic um, episode followed by a really steep depression, which is I just ended up getting extremely depressed and because I was so sleep deprived. So I tried to nurse him for a couple months. I just was more and more depressed. My husband was more and more worried. So he was, he said, you know, I really think you ought to stop nursing and let's get you back on medicine. So I went back to the same psychiatrist and the medicine that worked so well did not work. Interesting. And so, right. And so we spent the next 10 to 12 years wow. trying to figure out medicine. Um, we, um, we tried, so the SSRIs is, I think it's serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. I think that's what it stands for. SSRIs, um, they, um, target serotonin, the, um, and mine happens to be a, a neurotransmitter. Mine, mine happens to be the dopamine neurotransmitter that isn't working well. So, um, all of those SSRIs that we tried, um, basically just made me really groggy, tired, didn't do much. And so I ended up spending a lot of time in bed, just getting more and more depressed and more and more lethargic and not really knowing how to get past it. And so, um, my daughter, sorry, there's a few threads that I just need to help you understand. So my daughter, um, right before we had our son, um, she had a 20 minute grand mal wow. seizure and scared us to death. And I was really pregnant. And so we called the ambulance and rode with the ambulance and she had a spinal tap. And so she was diagnosed with epilepsy right before my son was born. So that was another kind of complication during that whole time. Well, she had seizures for all that time. Um, we never knew when they were going to happen. Most of the time it was like in the time right before she was going to sleep or right before she woke up. So bedtime was really scary for her. And so um, we just, you know, had a lot of needed to give her a lot of TLC during the, those, you know, the going to sleep at nighttime. And some of the seizures continued to be 20 minutes long. We only had to call the ambulance one other time, but anyway, so that was really hard on my, this whole depression through those years. Um, and so in 2006, we spent two weeks at primary children's hospital and um, she was hooked up to the EEGs so that she could be monitored. And she didn't have a seizure the whole time we were there, which is the no point. Way. They wanted to get, you know, capture sure. a seizure on, you know, so they could monitor it on the EEG monitor and know more about her because all they knew was she had severely abnormal brainwave activity, but they didn't, they hadn't ever witnessed it. So we tried again at Christmas time in 2007. 
over Christmas break, another two weeks, no seizure again. And so at that time, I was getting very, very depressed. It, you know, we're going on eight years now of trying to figure out what to do with my depression. And um, when we got home from the hospital, I kind of crashed um, as far as depression went. And that's kind of when I spent, I spent a good two or three years just kind of in bed. Um, I, I think there was a lot of agoraphobia involved, meaning it was very hard for me to leave our bedroom and it's very hard for me to leave the house. Um, it meant that I wasn't able to go to church. Church freaked me out so much. Like I, I would go and I would just sob, just sob through the talks and lessons and hide in the bathroom and not be able to go back. And then that would create a vicious cycle of not wanting to go the next week. And anyway, so it ended up that I was kind of just a prisoner in my bedroom and, you know, of my own making, but I, it, it was a very, very dark time for me. And my husband, um, was always very, very um, patient and kind and just really the best person I know still. He was just really, he is what kept the family together. He decided about the time that, about the time when I kind of ended up in bed right after that hospital stay, 2008, early 2008, he decided to um, bring his work home. So he worked in our home office, which was very helpful because then I wasn't all alone and he was able to take care of more of the house home homemaking type activities. He already did a lot of the cooking and to help with the kids. So that was a really huge blessing. So sorry, that's a long introduction, but it really kind of helps you understand what comes next. So um, we, so like I said, until about fall 2010, I just was really depressed in bed. And, you know, I wasn't sleeping. I was kind of hiding on in blog. I called it blog land. I had a few blogs that I would keep up and I just, and I read a lot, but I just, I was scared to leave the house, just terrified. I would just shake so badly anytime I left the house. So in fall of 2010, I remember one day vividly sitting on the side of my bed thinking, I am not doing anybody any good. I'm not doing any good for me, my family, certainly nobody outside of my family. Like there's really no point for me to even be here anymore, but I wasn't suicidal. So I didn't want to be there, but I, I, you know, I was there. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? So I couldn't die. So I decided I needed to learn how to live. And I just wasn't sure how to do that. And in that moment of just kind of pondering, um, what do I do with myself? Um, I just felt very prompted that I needed to start walking and not only just walking, but like walking to destinations so that I had a reason to leave the house, but didn't have to see people. So what I did is every day I would walk four blocks to the Harmon's grocery store and pick up something and or I would go to the office park nearby and mail a letter. Or I would, um, those are two of the, of the big things. And the, one of my therapists early on had said, you know, if you could just kind of go walk around the grounds of the church, that might be good. And we could see the church from our upstairs bedroom window. It was really close. So that was very easy. So on the way back from either of those places, I would just walk around the church just to kind of, help it not be a scary place. Um, and so I did that for quite a while. 
And um, a lot of times I specifically tried to do that when it was gray weather. I had a lot of the the seasonal affective disorder, the SAD, um, that people talk about when it's gray weather. And so I, I noticed that um, when you're looking out the window at the gray, it is very gray and depressing. When you're actually out in it, you don't notice how gray it is because there's still sunshine. And so that ended up, you know, the endorphins started flowing with the walking and the sunshine was very good, but it was very important for me to walk on these gray days through this winter time. So that was really powerful. And so anyway, I, I just um, walked every day somewhere to a destination and I, through that time, um, kind of built up my, um, you know, muscles and, and my, my, um, and, and was able to walk farther. And so then I started walking to Costco quite often. It's a three mile, so a six mile round trip, three miles there, three miles back to pick up prescriptions. Or I would walk to the library and pick up or drop off books or, or to the dry cleaners to take drop off hangers or, you know, any, and all of those were like, you know, like the, the six mile walk. And so that made it so I wasn't just gone for a half hour anymore. I was gone for two hours. And that was a big deal that, um, and my whole world revolved around these walks. I wasn't really doing anything else, but every day I was walking and becoming healthier and healthier and leaving the house, which was really powerful. So my son became a deacon. Oh, I need to, I need to tell you this one thing. So we went back to the psychiatrist all this whole time. I was on those SSRIs right around the same time that I decided to start walking the psychiatrist tried the original medicines again, and it actually did start working, which is, I think, how I was able to do the walking. Um, and so um, it was still on a lower dose, though. So, um, But it made it so that I could function, and my our son became a deacon April of 2011. So I'd been walking for, you know, I've, about six, six, seven months. So that's when I decided okay, I'm going to go every week and watch him pass the sacrament. It's going to be my destination. I'm going to go, that's, I'm going to do it like my walks. And so every week I would go and watch him pass the sacrament and have a full on panic attack every week, but I wouldn't let myself go to the bathroom. I just made myself stay and cry and shake. And I thought, certainly everybody's looking at me, but I just couldn't, I just had to be like, really just like focused on just getting through this panic attack. And then I would do the same thing at Release Society. I wouldn't leave. And a lot of the talks are triggery and release of my lessons were triggery and made me feel guilty and crying, but I wouldn't let myself go. And so after about six months, I made it through the panic attacks and church became wow. okay. Yeah, it was a huge gift. All of it, I can, as I look back, I can see just so clearly how God's hand was in all of it. And um, anyway, so... That got me going back to church. And when when I wasn't going to church, my husband was very kind. He would always take the kids, you know, to church and they would wave at me at the door. And he was just so good. He was just so good with me. And the kids, he just, I just, you know, I would have never made it without his kindness and his really compassion. Anyway, so um, I started doing Word of the Year, um, which is where you take a word and you um, look at the year through the lens of that word rather than doing New Year's resolutions. So my first word of the year was that first year, 2010, and I chose joy. And I realized that I could choose, 
to feel joy before I even felt it. And by the end of that year, I was starting to feel joy. Well, um, 2011, I I chose to do the word, um, I think it was decide. Maybe decide was in 2012. Anyway, I um, I decided habits. And so every day I would, I would, I started with flossing my teeth and then my, my medicine was up to the, the very therapeutic dose, which helped me to function better. And so then I would, I would, every day I would do the dishes and wipe the counter. I would make my bed. So it made it, so I didn't have to get back in bed. And then I would do things like practice the piano, but I would do them for two or three weeks. And then once I had one down, then I would start the next one. And then I would start the next one. So that year was just an incremental, let's just start being functioning out. You know, besides, you know, first it was just walking, then it was walking and church. Um, and so, um, and the actually the year before in 2011, I can't remember what my word was because I'm nervous right now. But um, what I ended up doing was I decided to do church. And so I would go to church every week. And then... And after, so we're back in 2011, in June of 2011, after I'd been going to church and watching my son for about two months, then I decided to start reading the Book of Mormon every day. My dad took, went on a walk with me. He's like, are you reading your scriptures? I'm like, no, they make me feel guilty. He's like, I think that should be what you need to do. And so no matter what, I started reading the Book of Mormon. And um, I kind of at that point had like the clocks in the house would just tick so loud and it just, everything I would wring my hands and it was made me very nervous. And so whenever that happened, I would open up the book of Mormon. So I was going to church every week. I was reading the book of Mormon every day. And then my parents um, went on their first mission to BYU Hawaii, um, August of 2011. Like I said, I backtracked a little bit. And so I met them at the temple in August of 2011 and they did the work for my mom's brother. That was the first time I'd been to the temple in a really long time. And I knew that that was my next, I called them my habits. That was my next habit. And so every week I went to the temple. So Yeah. So that was 2011. I can't remember what my word was that year, but then 2012 was my year was, that was decide. And then that's when I just did my functional habits of the household routines. So I was doing, I was walking still. Then I added in my spiritual habits. Then I added in these functional habits. So that was 2012, and I talked to my husband occasionally and was like, you know, we haven't really gone to the temple much in our marriage, and now I'm going, and if you ever wanted to go on a date, we didn't go on much many dates because he, was, he worked 12-hour days. He's always been very good to take care of our family, and I would always say, you know, you could, you could take me to the temple if you wanted, and he was always very hedgy about it, and he had always been in elders quorum presidencies and he was currently the ward executive secretary. He had been the executive secretary to the bishop, like I think about five years at that time, five or six years. And um, I went to a ceiling of my cousin's children at the Bountiful Temple where we were sealed. And um, that, that girl's dad wasn't there. He had been in some had some struggles and I just thought, oh, that empty chair. I feel so bad that they have that empty chair that where her dad should be. And so I came home and I, I was explaining that to John. I'm like, oh, that would be so hard if our kids decided to get married and, and one of us weren't there. And he said, well, 
think we better sit down and have a talk. And so he just said, um, I don't believe. And, and I was like, oh, what do you mean? And he's like, I don't believe in anything I don't see. And I'm like, like, like what? Like spiritual, like, like God. And he's like, yeah, I don't believe in God or Jesus or the Holy ghost or Satan or pre-earth life or post-earth life, anything I can't see. I don't believe it. And I kind of was like, that hit me hard, not expecting anything like that. He was executive secretary. And so I was just like, well, I just don't even understand this. And so we had a really long talk and it just was crushing me. I didn't even understand this. We'd served a mission together. We'd We'd gone, we'd been married in the temple. Our, our, he blessed our children. He baptized our children and ordained our son to be a deacon. And I just could not wrap my brain around it. And, and I thought, I'm getting better. Like I'm going like church, temple, like I'm better. And I'm now this, why, why is this happening now? And he's just like, you know, I just waited as long as I could. And I can see that you're doing well. And the last thing I want to do is mess up your progress, but I can see now that you can handle it and I can't handle it anymore. And so it was like a compliment and, and a difficulty all wrapped in one. So I, it flattered me that he felt like I was strong enough to take it, but just, just crushed me, just kind of obliterated my whole world. And I tried so hard to be supportive and, and understand it, but I couldn't understand it. He was very good. He kept, the bishop was like, I'm not going to release you. There's nothing, you're like perfectly worthy. And so he stayed as executive secretary for like a year and continued. He told me he would continue to go to church with me and the kids. He wasn't going to like check out completely. And so I was really grateful for that kind of, um, kind of time to get used to it, I guess. Um, and so he would sit with it, with me at church and I would just sob during the sacrament, which is so counterproductive, <laughs> but I just, it was just so hot, so hard to, to know he didn't even believe in God or Jesus and like everything that we talk about, everything we talked about at church, he didn't believe. And it just was this really crushing, scary, dark, lonely feeling. And I felt very strongly that I needed to, to keep it quiet. I didn't want to cause anybody to feel negatively about him. He was, you know, executive secretary. So he was, you know, reminding people to get their temple recommends when he didn't even have a temple recommend bless his heart. So anyway, he's just a good guy and he tried really hard for a long time. And so finally it got to the point where, um, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. And so, um, I think it was April of 2014 is when he finally didn't come anymore. And shortly after that, our children, our children stopped coming. And so I was going alone. And um, I, I jumped ahead to tell you that. So let me go back a little bit. So I didn't quite understand how to deal with it. And I would talk to him occasionally, try to figure things out. And um, he told me in August of 2012, during that whole time frame, when I was walking, I was having all these numb, all this numbness and tingling in my, like one time it was all in my feet. Actually, that happened back when in like 2003, my feet went numb. 
And then in 2011, there was a time when my torso went numb. And then I woke up March 20th, 2012. So before he told me, he told me in August of 2012, March 20th, 2012, I woke up and I, my whole right side from my, my ribs to my toes on my right side, completely numb. And that has never come back. So it's numb and um, tingly and kind of like, feels like maybe you hit your funny bone on a, you know, um, it's all of those kinds of feelings. So it's not completely numb. So it's like, more numb, but also more sensitive kind of a thing. Anyway, so that happened and I, I continued to walk, but, you know, struggled. And um, anyway, so I was having MRIs through this whole 2012 and my whole world is falling apart with my husband not believing and I'm trying to figure out what is wrong with me. And um, we finally, they kept, they kept telling me, well, we're not finding anything. There's no, there's no, um, there's, there's no, nothing's coming up on the MRI. And so I said, okay, we've met our deductible. So let's just do one more. And so they said, okay, we will do with and without contrast. Um, all of it. you we'll do the, the, the cervical and thoracic and lumbar, all of it. And you're going to be in the MRI tube for like two hours and we're just going to do it all. And I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And that was when the lesion was finally found. And it is on the T9 vertebrae of my spine. And just in case people don't know what, how MS works. So basically, um, if you picture like a vacuum cleaner cord, you know how there's a cord, the electrical cords on the inside, and it's encased with like a rubber casing. So if you're vacuuming and you kind of hit it, run over it a few times, it can kind of get kind of a notch taken out of it and you can kind of expose the wires. That is what happens. So MS is an autoimmune disease, which means that your body attacks itself. So the white blood cells are attacking the myelin sheath, which is like that vacuum cord cover around the spinal cord and your brain. So my, so the, the um, lesion was on the T9 right at the top of my rib cage. So, like I said, that never, um, the numbness, tingling never went away. And we, um, so once they had the lesion, once they have a lesion, then they can confirm it with a spinal tap. So I had a spinal tap and the proteins that are only for MS were very high. And I was diagnosed January of 2013. Okay. So John told me he didn't believe August, 2012, I'm diagnosed with MS January, 2013, and my world is falling apart. Yeah. And he was just very supportive from the very beginning. We had to start, um, start treatment. And so we had, um, I started with Capaxone injections at home and, um, they would ship them to our house and I would have to give myself injections every day and, um, alternating over these seven areas. And there were a couple of the areas that were harder to reach. So he was so kind and he helped me with those injections and, you know, continuing to, try to go to church, even though he doesn't believe. And he's just, he has just always been overly kind to me. It just, I'm just been so grateful for him, but it was hard, you know, like that, that was a hard time. And anyway, but I, so because he was so kind and so good to me and so patient with me, um, I felt like, okay, I need to be kind and patient and non-judgmental of him. Just like I didn't choose mental illness. 
apparently he didn't choose this. He told me later that he'd never been able to believe. He he just had never understood it and um, understood what people were talking about, like when they were talking about spiritual experiences. And in fact, our mission president just, he talked to the mission president about it. And our mission president just said, well, you know, elder, just fake it till you make it, but not flippant. Like keep doing the things until it comes. Keep keep doing all the prayer and scripture reading and serving and, and it'll come. Your testimony will come. And so that's what he was doing that whole time. He was, you know, faking it till he made it. And it just never happened. And, you know, it gets to the point where, it's been years and years and years, and he's kind of over it. So I'm grateful that he felt like he could trust me, and I'm grateful that he was able to be authentic with himself and not have that turmoil. I had turmoil now. His, term- <laughs> His turmoil went away, and so then I had to figure out how to deal with it. So April 2013 conference, I just was listening very carefully to all the talks, and it was all about the Godhead, which it always is anyway, but I was listening to it from what he would be hearing. And I just kind of crashed. I just, I went upstairs in our bedroom and just sobbed and prayed and tried to figure out, I don't, how am I going to do this the rest of my life? Like, I don't even, how does this even work? And I just kind of just laid there on the floor crying and just was just, didn't know, didn't know how I could even go on. And I knew it was I knew it wasn't depression though. It wasn't clinical depression because I was I continued to function. I kept doing all those things, church every week, temple every week, all all the walking. Um, but I just I, I was mourning. And and it's good that I was mourning. Um I it needed, you know, I needed to be able to process it and feel the sadness. Okay, so that was April of 2013. So I'm just kind of in mourning until September 2013. And I every day I would pray, what do I what do I need to do to get past this? How can I support John? What can I do? And um I was praying again on September 4th, 2013. And I remember these dates because they're like so pivotal to my journey. Um September 4th, I'm praying again, what more can I do? I'm doing all the things, you know. And I words in my head you need to know more people in the state. Well, I wasn't doing people yet. I was going to church and I was, but I wasn't doing people yet. I wasn't doing the socializing. I had severe social anxiety still. So I could do the certain things, but I wasn't spending time with people. I thought, okay, well, I need to know more people in my cul-de-sac. Like steak is so far off the radar, but I knew it wasn't me. I mean, I wouldn't have come up with that. So I thought, okay, Okay, I've been given an answer. So what does that even mean? It just occurred to me that I had heard an announcement that there was going to be a Stake Institute class starting. And I looked on the calendar. It was starting the next morning. Oh, well, that is awesome. So I will go to the Stake Institute class. I will walk there. That will be my destination. And I will stay and talk with people. And that will be knowing more people in the Stake. And that is apparently how I will do this. And the other thing I did the next morning is I decided to walk my daughter, our daughter, to the bus stop. She still was kind of overcome. Um, because she'd had seizures for so long, she was just developmentally struggling and everything. So I tried to give her a little extra care. So I, talk, I took her to the bus stop that day. And then I kept walking. We lived across the street from a walking track. 
I thought, okay, well, I'll just walk around the track and then my destination will be Institute in a couple hours. And ahead of me on the walking track were four of probably the most spiritual, amazing women in our ward walking together. It was the Relief Society president, the previous Relief Society president, the bishop's wife, and a bishopric member's wife. These four ladies, power ladies, and they were walking ahead of me. I thought, oh, great. And so um, the walking track is right below a cemetery that's on the hill. And so they would go up in the cemetery and walk up and down the hills because that gave them a better exercise. And so they waited at the base of that cemetery for me. And I, they're like, come walk with us. And I thought, I don't need people. So I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. But they wouldn't take no for an answer. And they are very kind, good people. And so I thought, okay, I'll just listen. I'll just listen to what they say. But no, they were very skillful and they drew me into the conversation because they're that kind of people. And as I was walking and talking with them, it became very clear to me that I needed to walk with these ladies. And I thought, no, I don't need to walk with these ladies. And I kept thinking, yes, I need to walk with these ladies. And by the end of that walk, I be- it became pretty clear that that was my next thing. That was my next habit, apparently, was to walk with these ladies and to go to the Institute. And it occurred to me, oh, well, these ladies are in my ward, but the ward is a mistake. So that counts. So I decide I'm going to start, I'm going to start not only with this Institute class, but I'm going to start with the war. And so I walked with these ladies and the Relief Society president and I ended up walking together alone one day. Like, I think it was like a Thursday, like two or three days into it. It was just me and her that showed up. And I just was like, well, I need to know more people and you're the Relief Society president. And is there anybody that you're like worried about or something that you think could use a visit? And so she gave me a few names and two of the ladies happened to have birthdays that, that month. And, you know, looking back, could Heavenly Father have just lined it up any better? Let's, let's give her the prompting. Let's give her an institute class. Let's give her people to walk with and let's give her the first people to visit. I mean, it couldn't have been more kind of Heavenly Father to help me. And so I went and visited those two ladies and the first lady was older and in her eighties, didn't drive a widow. And so Um, she always wanted to go to the temple every week and I was already going to the temple every week. So I just decided to start taking her to the temple every week. And so we did that for about two years. And the second lady that I visited, I, um, they had a lot of struggles and their house was kind of, um, one of their struggles. And so I listened to a talk and the talk was um, by the general relief study president. and And it said, first observe, then serve. And that became kind of my mantra. So I would, I I didn't know how to serve really. I didn't have any practice. And so I would just look and there were a lot of things that could happen because they struggled with their housework. And so I just decided, okay, well, I can take out their garbage every time I go over. That's something I could do because I like habits, right? So every time I went over, if their garbage needed to be taken out, I took out their garbage. I would sometimes sweep. I wasn't over there to clean, but I, I'm just I'm explaining this, that it was the perfect place for me to learn how to serve. And I was able to, um, you know, take them grocery shopping. And sometimes I would help a little bit with their bills. And I just tried to help them in all the areas. However, they, it was her mom, it was this family and her mom lived there. That mom, this friend and her mom became my dear dear friends. And they, I probably went over to their house, you know, 
at least two or three times a week, but sometimes almost every day of the week um, for that first year. And there, that kind of became my home base for my visiting. Um, I kind of just started from there. So I would go to the Institute class and stay and talk with people. And then I just started visiting people and I would just, and people are always asking, well, how did you do that? And I just, you know, would start making appointments with people at church. And so I would start visiting all the ladies in our ward. And then I would go to all the steak activities and like talk to people before and after. And then I just started looking at the steak lists and I would just kind of like go through the lists. And if there was a name that would pop out at me, I would, I would call them or email them and, and ask if they would let me visit them. And most people thought I was selling something and I was not. And I am, as you can tell, I'm pretty transparent. And I was very transparent with that too. And mostly I would just say, I'm trying to overcome social anxiety. And I would wonder, I was just wondering if you would let me come practice with you is basically what I would say. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so I, and so they were helping me, but I, it turned out that I was helping them because there were a lot of people who were depressed. You know, you don't have to look far to find people who are struggling. And that's one of the reasons we're encouraged to serve because it gets us out of our own head and into, you know, trying to help other people. And there was a lot to be, there were a lot of people that needed help. And there were a lot, especially ladies who were depressed. And so a few of them, I would start walking with them and um, helping them that way. Um, and and so over those two years, I, I kind of realized that it was supposed to be an unofficial mission. And I called it just, you know, my visiting mission. And I ended up visiting over 500 ladies wow. um, in those two years. And it was all in our stake. And when I got um, a little more confident, I started visiting old friends, you know, Layton, Payson, out to Eagle Mountain. It became kind of a, just a confidence building exercise. And it just grew my social muscles. It grew my confidence muscles. And in the process, it really helped a lot of ladies. And I found my friends. Um, I didn't have any friends before that. And so I was very lonely with my burden of, of not understanding how this fit with John's unbelief. And um, so that Relief Society president, I ended up, she was the first one I told about a year later. And then I, I told my, the lady I, that Visa taught me and just a few people I was able to tell, but I still kept, I still wanted to be very careful of his, um, I just didn't want people to think badly of him. And so, um, but, but there were probably, there were that Relief Society president was one of them. And there were three or four other friends that I found in my journey that became dear, dear friends. Um, and we, we still walk together, some of them, and, um, they were just, I, I, so not only was I helping other people, but Heavenly Father helped me by finding my people and, and that would, would support me through this. And so, um, yeah, that was miraculous on so many levels that they, because it was 500 people, but it wasn't 500 visits. Some of those people I visited a hundred times. And wow. so it was a full-time thing. And, um, so it probably, I, because I have this bipolar disorder, I understand that I think a lot of it was, I was hyper-focused because of my bipolar disorder, but so much good came out of it. And I'm so grateful for that because, um, it helps me to understand that Heavenly Father can take, you know, weak, quote unquote, broken people and do such good with us that he can use us as instruments. It doesn't matter 
how capable, how confident, how, you know, whatever he can use us. And he used little me to do a really kind of a, a really big work in that stake. And, um, anyway, it kind of helps me. I, I know a lot of people, you know, one of John's issues is Joseph Smith. Um, and I, it really helped me to kind of understand that, you know, <clears throat> Joseph Smith, there's a lot of things that people really struggle with in his life and the way he handled things. But, you know, I keep thinking, look at what God was able to do with this poor farm boy who wasn't educated. And I, I'm not anything like Joseph Smith, but it just helps me to understand a little better. Like the Lord did a big work with little me and he used, an, you know, he uses the weak things of the world to do really important things. And so that actually kind of strengthened my testimony of the gospel. It kind of really, as John was floating further and further away, it just really strengthened that aspect of the restored gospel, but also answered prayers through Heavenly Father, um, all sorts of um, grace and enabling power in that visiting adventure. And the Holy Ghost clearly was prompting things. So I would ab- I was able to just really gain a very close relationship with the, all three members of the Godhead in that visiting adventure. And I would go home and tell my family about it. And it wasn't like there it wasn't preaching because I was just like, let me tell you what happened today. It was the coolest miracle. And my family was like, you think everything's a miracle. I'm like, but really, it's like there were so many neat miracles. And so it was a way that Heavenly Father helped me to take my focus off of my grief over John and helped me to do good in the meantime. And along with that, gave me something positive to talk with uh, spiritually with my family that wasn't preaching because they knew what I believed and they didn't need to hear any of that anymore. And so it was just, you know, Heavenly Father is an absolute genius. And that was very clear through that whole thing. So um, because I was able to do that visiting journey, it gave me a lot of confidence. And when my daughter decided to go to UVU, I, Utah Valley University, she asked me if I would go and on the tour with her which was um, fall of 2015. So we would, so she graduated in June of 2015. So that's when we went. And I, okay, so back before college, I had done a quarter at Weber State and a semester at BYU. And that was it. And, and it was very hard for me because of my social anxiety and because of the depression. And I did okay, but I, there was one class that I just, I couldn't, it was a humanities class and I could not make myself go. And I begged the teacher at the end for a D minus. I'm a perfectionist and I got good grades and that was really awful. So that was my last college experience and I never wanted to go back. And, um, but I thought, oh, well, I can support my daughter. And so we went on this tour and I was just taking pictures and, you know, trying to be really supportive of her. And we went down this hallway and the, the guide was talking about how the, the class sizes are so small here. And we looked inside a math class and all of a sudden, words in my head, um, yeah, you need to go here. You need to go to school here with your daughter. And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> and um, But I, I knew what I heard. And the good thing about me is Heavenly Father knows that if he gives me a prompting, especially a crazy prompting, he knows I will go full, full 100% on it because I know it's from him. And I know, and I want him to trust me. And so I always, 
I always follow anything that I even think is remotely a prompting. I always do. So I went home and I sent away my transcripts and ended up starting college with my daughter with seven whole credits to my name to transfer. And so that became kind of my next adventure. Um, I, I needed to, because I had bipolar disorder and MS, I was able to have accommodations and I was able, I, I learned that the best thing I could do was just take six to nine credits every semester and pace myself. And the good thing about when you're grown up and you've helped your kids with homework is I learned that I just needed to go to class and do my homework. And that's 90% of the battle. And when you're younger, you just procrastinate. So I very early on, I understood what I needed to do. And so therefore there again was kind of my next habit. And I, I continued my visiting journey on campus. So most of my professors I ended up talking with before and after a lot of kids. Um, I always, it seemed like there was always one or two kids in every class that kind of needed me or I needed them or anyway. So my visiting continued on campus and um, so sorry, this is a really long story. Do you need me to stop for a breather or anything? Okay. So anyway, um, it would be fall of 2017. So two years into this of me, I went full year round with just six to nine credits. So it was still slow. And I was doing a behavioral science degree and I started a new semester and I had been very depressed before that semester happened. And also side note that you, that is probably important because my MS was getting more difficult. Um, I, it got to the point where it was hard for me to go up and down our stairs in our house. We lived in a four level split. So no matter where you go in a four level split, you have, you have stairs. And, and it got to the point where sometimes I would even have to like kind of pull myself up the banister. I was in very good shape, but along with the numbness came weakness a little bit. And so my good husband, he's like, well, I guess we need to find a, a like a rambler ranch or, you know, main level living for you. And we drove all over. We looked from Orem up and up to Draper, closer to Salt Lake. And everywhere we went, we'd come home and we'd drive up 8th North and Timpanogos is on here, on the left and Cascades on the right. And those were our mountains and we could not leave those mountains. And my husband bikes and rides, uh, bikes and runs up in those mountains. And we were right next to the foothills. And so we just knew we were supposed to stay in Orem, but we couldn't find one that had three bedrooms on the main because our daughter needed to be near us still. She had overcome her seizures, but still needed a lot of support. And so no matter where we, you know, always like two bedrooms on the main. So my husband would run sometimes down a street in Orem and Orem's landlocked and, and really very, there's very few places to build, but there was this one um, property that was next to a canal that was being subdivided into this weird shaped lot. And um, he just felt very strongly that we were supposed to live there. So he felt very strongly. He was supposed to marry me on our mission. He felt very strongly about this house. I'm pretty sure that's the spirit, but he doesn't think so. Anyway, he felt very strongly. We were supposed to be in this house or, or build a house here. And so um, the, the, um, the architect was able to make the house fit on this, lot just it couldn't have been off an inch and it was just right for us it, um it was a really long it's where i live now 
very long house. And so it, it, we made it very wheelchair friendly in case I ever need a wheelchair. And so we moved into this house, March of 2017. So here we are fall of 2017 now. And I've been, we've been in this house for six months and I started this semester. I was feeling very depressed and had kind of a traumatic summer. And I was taking positive psychology and interpersonal relationship skills. I think that was the name. They're going to be really good for what I needed. And I, in the positive psychology class, we were supposed to do this thing where it's an experiment where we were supposed to listen to this, this talk. I can't, it's the beginning of the secret, whatever. It's the, the strangest secret, I think. We had to listen to it like every day and then, and, and then just have a goal in mind, but not how it was going to be accomplished. And so I decided that my goal needed to be more, be more balanced, somehow get more balanced because bipolar, that is my, that is my hardest thing is just staying stable and balanced. I kind of just, you know, swing a lot from mostly depression, but some elevated mood in between and just normal sometimes just normal mood. Anyway, I was coming off of this depression. And so everything she had us do, I just really focused on. So she had us write these five affirmation cards. And so I did like 20 affirmation cards. I just was really trying to really focus on it. And I just was, we were supposed to put all of our energy and all of our faith into this goal, but not know how it was going to be happen. And so I did. And about two weeks into it, we were supposed to do it for 30 days, two weeks into it, all of a sudden, my husband and I had a little fight. And the thing that he would always say is that, quote unquote, I always go away, like emotionally with the visiting. And then with school, I wouldn't mean to, but I would get kind of one track with my OCD and perfectionism. And I would, I would quote unquote, go away. And I thought, well, then I need to not go away. But how do I not go away? And it just hit me so strongly that I needed to withdraw from school. And I thought, well, that's not the answer. But I knew that was the answer. I thought, ah, this, anyway, it was very clear that was the answer and that I was supposed to work on our marriage. And so I wrote my professor and I said, you can consider this my essay. I'm not completely sure I'm going to sleep on it. But if this is real, I'm going to withdraw tomorrow if you're, you know, and I can meet you at school or whatever. And so she was disappointed, but could clearly see that I had been, you know, my answer had come from the universe. And so (laughs) anyway, so I withdrew from school that next day. And then I came home and I thought, what have I done? I have just put all my baskets, all my eggs in the basket of fixing my marriage. And what have I done? Because what happens? What happens if I can't fix my marriage? And Now I don't have visiting anymore and I don't have school anymore. And, uh, and so we did, we went to marriage therapy 10 different times, 10 visits. And we started walking again, which is what we did back when we were dating. And, and, and it was, and things were going well. We were, we were connecting more. It was going well. And I also, people kept telling me that I, I needed to write a book about my experiences. And I was like, no, you can write the book. Why don't you write the book if you want a book? And they're like, no, you really need to write a book. I'm like, I don't know how to write a book. But then it came very clearly that I should probably use this time maybe to start writing this book. 
And I could not figure out how to do it. It felt so hard for me. And so I just, my parents were getting ready to go on another mission and I, they were going through boxes and my mom found my grandma. So my maternal grandma's, um, history, her, her journal and a whole bunch of her, um, I, I don't know, like just special things that belong to her. And so she sent them home with me one day and I started transcribing her journal and she came over from Holland when she was five and, um, settled in, in Utah. And my mom, they, she had seven kids. My mom is her only daughter. I'm my mom's oldest daughter. And I actually lived with her the, that quarter that I went to Weber state. So I felt a really strong connection to this grandma. And all of a sudden my book became, okay, I'm just going to write my personal history, but very soon it became family history. And I became just apparently spirit of Elijah and it came settled pretty strongly. And I, I thought, well, okay, I, I've never done any family history. And I didn't really think of that part, but I was going to the temple every week and January 30th, 2018. So I, I dropped out in the fall of 2017. So my husband and I've been working on our marriage that whole fall. So January 30th, I got, I got a name from family search. I'd never received a name before to do temple work for, and I reserved it. And so that's the first time I'd ever received a temple name. And my mom, my sister lived in North Carolina and their temple was closing and she had already been doing family history work. And she had like 12 or 13 names that she needed to still have done. And so she's like, well, can I send those to you? So my birthday's in February. So my mom and I went and did these 14 initiatories for these, the one that was sent to me and the 13 my sister sent. And they all had my birthday stamped on them. It was very special. It was the last time my mom and I had gone to the temple, kind of like the time before they left their last mission was when my first temple experience happened. And that started my family history journal journey. And I spent the next two years working on family history pretty exclusively. I also went back to college and felt strongly that I needed to go back in the summer. And so again, quote unquote, went away again, but all good things, right? And so anyway, so many miracles happened with that family history and temple journey. I, um, I kind of continued my visiting there. There were some regulars that I became very good friends with. We started helping each other. So some of the older men would do some of my endowments and I would do some of their women endowments and it just became very sweet. It was a very sweet experience. And contrary to what people might think, you know, I think, I think a lot of times um, it's a tricky thing when you have a mixed marriage. So now my husband doesn't believe my two children, adult children don't believe it's just me. I feel pretty isolated, but try really hard to be connected with them. And you would think Listening, I spent a lot of times doing ceilings. Listening to the ceiling ordinance over and over again, you would think it would make me sad. You would think, oh, what happened to my eternal marriage, you know? But I became so just, it was so powerful how strongly I felt that Heavenly Father understood my husband. And he understood my children and he understood me. And it was okay for all of us to feel the way we did. 
and it was okay. It was okay that I was sad. And it was also okay that I was finding these really productive ways to, to channel my sadness into something powerful and good so that it, I wasn't just home moping and feeling so sad about my disaster of a marriage, which it wasn't. I, I was able to really focus on positive things. When I was at college, I focused on really learning all the different things about behavioral science. And in the temple, I just really gained a strong testimony of eternal families of all things. And just really, I feel like when we do the work for our ancestors, because it's something they can't do for themselves, I feel like it connects them to us too. And so I feel like I really started getting a lot of help from, from my family members on the other side of the veil. My my husband doesn't believe, my children still don't believe. Nothing has changed except everything has changed. Um, it's so interesting about perspective, how when you focus on gratitude and you focus on doing good, it squeezes it squeezes the negative out. You don't even need to have like positive mental attitude. It just, because of the time spent and the energy spent in a more positive direction, it just squeezes the negative out. And so I was able to have, you know, my visiting journey and then my college journey and now this family history temple journey. I feel like those were three, three just unofficial missions, but just gifts that Heavenly Father gave me through this time. And um, so a lot of times, you know, I, I bring up bipolar and MS and my husband told me he didn't believe all that. Those are like the three pivotal things in my life. Well, two of those are diseases. Like you don't want to lump your husband in with diseases. And so and I think often he's felt like, why do you do that? Why, why am I just one of those hard things that happen? And I, I've just recently been able to start explaining to him more how pivotal, how, how much that has changed me because Almost all of my essays in college were exploring my feelings on this, different different aspects of this, of him not believing. And I was able to kind of process it in college and, and really process it in the temple. And I've just been able to explain to him how, you know, my dad is church history, you know, BYU guy, super strong in the gospel on one hand. And my husband is an atheist, on the other hand, complete opposite spectrums, right? On opposite ends of the spectrum. And here I am in the middle. I love them both. And I admire them both. And I had to figure out what is it that Wendy believes? What, what is it that I believe? Not what my dad taught me, not what my husband and I have always done together, but what do I believe? And I, I, it, it, just, it just solidified it solidified, like I talked about with Joseph Smith, it just solidified my feelings about eternal marriage um, and about the importance of temple work and the importance of, of bearing one another's burdens, that, that their baby light and mourning with those that mourn and helped me to understand that I learned so much of that through my visiting journey. All of this, I was able to start bringing home. I had to kind of leave home to learn it. But then I, I gradually was bringing it all home and trying to really work on my family and my adult children and my husband. And, you know, we still have a long way to go um, and it's and it's not easy, but it's just it's been Heavenly Father kind of worked a masterpiece. And it's as I look back, I couldn't I couldn't have 
there's no way I could have planned any of that. There's no way I could have done any of that on my own power. And I was able to get my associate degree in November of um, 2019. And I also, um, I went and visited my family on my parents on their mission. They were serving at historic Kirtland and I had, I, I decided to go back. I, I, I didn't know I could take Institute. So I, I got my, I, I ended up getting my Institute diploma at the same time as my associate degree diploma. And I took foundations of the restoration during the time that I went and visited my parents. So it was like the best field trip ever. And we, and I was able to visit the Kirtland temple and the John Johnson home. And my parents actually lived two doors down from the Newell K Whitney store. And my dad was able to give me a blessing up where they did the School of the Prophets. And at the John Johnson home, we were able to be in the, in the upper bedroom where Section 76 was given. So like both places where Jesus had been seen. So powerful, such a powerful field trip. And, and it, that solidified it even more. And so, so I was able to do this institute thing. I never was going to do institute. That was my dad's thing. And so that was something special that I was able to do while my dad was on his mission that totally strengthened me as well. So I just am so grateful that all of these neat things that Heavenly Father helped me do strengthened me so much, but also the ripple effect has strengthened my family. I can't even explain how it has strengthened my family. And maybe I don't even know Maybe I won't know until years looking back, but I know that Heavenly Father knows how to do His work. I know He used me to do some of His work. I know He knows how to do His work, and He's a perfect parent, and He loves my husband, and He loves my kids more than I love them. And we have a Savior that is going to work until the very last minute to save every one of us to draw us closer to him and to, and to save us through his grace and through our relationship with him. And I, I'm just so grateful for those that has been just driven home so powerfully to me. And so, you know, day-to-day life at our home, it's still, there's still some tricky things, but I'm learning some things like I'm learning. I've finally joined the musical streaming community first time in ever. I'm not doing CDs anymore. So my, my son and I, we talk a lot about streaming. And um, my husband and I have learned to do a few things together. He does woodworking down in our basement. And he's made, he actually even made me two temple card boxes, these beautiful boxes to hold all my temple cards. And I guess the last thing I would want to tell you is we've all gone through this pandemic. Everybody's been affected by this COVID-19 pandemic. And um, there is another thread that I want to tell you about really quick. So um, last, so Mother's Day, May 2019, my daughter had been dating a boy and um, they came into my office and and gave me a, a gift bag for Mother's Day. And I looked down and realized that it was probably something bigger. And I saw a pregnancy test on top of a onesie and knew that when I looked up, I wasn't going to get this moment back. And that when I looked up, I needed to be sincere. And I looked up at my daughter 
And I was able to explain, sincerely say to her that I knew she would be a great mother, that she had so much love to give. Her boyfriend was here in the room too. I congratulated them and I literally felt that love. And my office is where I do my family history work. I believe my, my office is a temple. I know that because we were in that room when they told me, I fully believe that the spirit took charge of that because I don't think my own self would have been smart enough to think, oh, you'll never get this moment back. You better say it right. I'm so grateful that I handled it that way. There's been, there were many times when I, I worried and what would, what would become of, you know, single mom and they live, they, um, her boyfriend moved in with us and they live in our basement and, and it, it's turned out to be a really neat thing. They're, they're engaged now and, um, soon to be married. We had this beautiful one-year-old grandson and he was born January, 2020. So a month after I graduated from high school, I mean, <laughs> from college and, um, and then my daughter had a C-section and like was in labor for like 50 hours and then ended up having a C-section. So her idea was, I'll just take the weekend off and I'll go back to college. Like I'll, I'll <laughs> and it wasn't that at all. She, she had to drop out of that semester. So for seven months, it was me and this little baby and my daughter. And we were able to really bond and have these special, special moments. When I, when she was growing up, I was in bed and she had seizures and we missed a lot, I think. And I'm so grateful that we were able to get that time back. So that was a way, that was a gift that Heavenly Father really gave us. And then the pandemic hit. If they hadn't been living with us, I have MS, so I'm immunocompromised. So I've been like, I'm back to being a prisoner in my house. I've gone very few. I haven't been to the grocery store. My husband took up grocery shopping. Like I've been very few places, probably nine or 10 places in the 10 months. But because they live with us, I have seen that little sweet baby every day of his life. And I'm the, I'm the babysitter. So when my daughter goes to college, I spend time with him. So he has been the biggest compensatory blessing of my life. And it could have been bad. Like it, it, if I had handled it differently, it, it could have been not a sweet thing. But it was, it's become such a sweet, sweet thing. And Anyway, so I just look at that and I think, huh, you know, Heavenly Father sees things a little differently. I think, you know, he sees the end from the beginning. At first I thought, oh my gosh, my life is over. My husband doesn't believe. Oh no, my, my daughter's having a baby out of wedlock. And yet these things have turned out to be these pivotal, beautiful moments and experiences in my life. So I'm really grateful for that. And I guess the last thing I would say is, um, I think a lot of times, you know, there's, there's a stigma that comes with mental illness. I think a lot of us, um, still, I think we've come a long way as a society, but, but I think we still need a ways to go. And I, I'm so grateful that I have an opportunity to talk about, you know, bipolar disorder and all the things that I was able to do anyway. Like it didn't stop my life. It's been really hard, but it didn't stop my life. Heavenly Father was able to use to even within that hard circumstance, use, use me for good still. And I, I actually don't like it that I have bipolar disorder, but it's not a character flaw. It is, it is part of what, it's part of, it's part of my, I assume part of my mission, 
part of the whole package of my mission on earth. And it's so neat how Heavenly Father can use these hard, hard things and sanctify us and, and bless us through a mental illness, through a neuro, through, you know, a, a MS is a disease that nobody wants, through, an, you know, a, a family where I'm the only one that believes, but yet these, these experiences have, it's, it surprises me how sweet, how sweet things have become. And only Heavenly Father could do that. Only the Savior's atonement could do that. Um, there's no earthly thing that can turn things, hard things, that sweet. And, and doesn't mean every day is good, <laughs> but I, I just am very grateful. I'm grateful for the Savior and His grace and um, how He supports me every day. And I think, anyway, I, that's kind of my story. I, I, don't know, I don't know where else to go from that, but that, that was a long story. <laughs> it's a great story. <clears throat> Thank you. I don't have anything to add, Wendy. I just, on behalf of all of our listeners, this has just been very faith-promoting and and bringing light to difficult topics in a faithful way. Bipolar, MS, a husband, who you love. I look at your marriage and your family as a beautiful love story. Yeah, I do too. Um, obviously, when you were on that flight home from Philadelphia, what you hope for and what's become reality is very, very different. Yeah. But I love that you still have hope and a confidence in our church or confidence in the plan and see the people in your life that aren't in the church and see them for the people that they are. Um, yeah. Wonderful human beings doing great things. And I think I, all I can say is this is a beautiful love story. Thank you. And when I we started this podcast, we went live, you just talked about your love for John. And yeah. you said he is not a villain. He is a great man. And I just think you give perspective to lots of LDS families that have people that aren't active. And and I think if we just trust um, this beautiful gospel we believe in and loving heavenly parents and want to do everything. And I love the human the way you humanize the people in your family that aren't in the church and just see them for the good and their contributions and the gifts and and leave it all at the Savior's feet and don't see them necessarily as people that are in or out of the church. That's the reality of their situation, but you don't see them that way. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, to me, it's owning our gospel and owning our doctrine, and and it's a beautiful love story. It's the best thing I can describe, but it's very different than what you thought would happen on that plane. But maybe if you could choose these two paths— at times you're glad for this because I call you, I read this quote a lot on the podcast. My listeners are familiar with it, but it's, it's called the wounded healer, which you are. And the quote goes like this, a minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. So you know a lot of deserts right now that you didn't know when you were getting on that plane home from Philadelphia, and it's given you the ability to connect with people in very authentic, needed ways. And there are a lot of people that I would guess could come on the podcast and talk about how Wendy Jagerson has been the person that got them, understood them, could actually talk about their situation, that could empathize and could sort of give them hope and walk them out of that desert. And that's part of your life mission 
Thank it's you. a very unique, beautiful, hard life mission, but um, I wish our listeners could see you on the Zoom. You're just full of light and goodness and hope and have Thank walked you. through really complicated things. I'm grateful to your friend, Brenda Warren, who was the one that connected us. If you're listening, Brenda, thank you for making One of this. those dear friends. That, I figured she that is. Father helped me find. So um, this is Richard Osler and, and Wendy Jagerson signing up on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.